Hey friends, welcome back to Real Talk with Rachel. I'm your host, Rachel Gilbert, and I am grateful and honored that you've chosen to tune in today. This show is a safe place you can come to hear relevant, engaging, and authentic topics to help you get real, live free, and pursue your God-given dreams. Speaking of getting real and talking about authentic topics, that's exactly what we're doing in today's episode. We are tackling a quite large mental health topic, and that is suicide awareness. Now, if you listen to Monday's talk therapy episode, you know the theme for this week is suicide awareness. And I want to encourage you, if you hear that word and it kind of makes you go, oh, I don't feel like listening to this or that doesn't really apply to me or anything, can I just encourage you to just hang around for a minute, listen in. I just think all of us need to be part of these conversations. And I brought an amazing guest on today's show to talk about this. Kayla Steckline shares the journey that led to her husband's suicide, and she encourages others to be a safe space for those struggling. Kayla is an advocate for those confronting mental illness. When she isn't busy raising her three young boys, you can find her on the beach, sipping an iced coffee and searching for little glimpses of heaven on earth. Today, we discussed all of this and her heart behind her new book, Fear Gone Wild. You guys are going to love Kayla, so let's jump into that conversation now. Well, hello, Kayla, and welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. Yeah, so at the beginning of this episode, when I read your professional bio, something that I love to ask my guests is, what is maybe one random fun fact about you that we would not have read in your professional bio? I'm a vegetarian. Really? <laughs> I've been a vegetarian for like... Gosh, probably 15 or 16 years. Wow. What, what, how'd that come about? I was in junior high and I just decided to stop eating meat. I blame it on my parents for not being the best cooks. All the meat that they made was always like really chewy and like flavorless and like not good. So I just stopped eating it and I have never picked it back up again. So then I'm assuming that means are your boys vegetarian too? Like do you cook that way for your for them or how does that no. work? No. They okay. love they love meat. Okay. <laughs> so we have to try to figure out how to make it. We'll go to our friend's house and they'll have like a big barbecue and they'll make ribs and brisket and steak and they're like stoked out of their minds. Oh, it's really awesome. funny. Yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah, I just love getting to, I love those little fun facts about people because we kind of get to know you a little better on a more personal note. So we're going to dive into what we're going to chat about today. You have a book releasing at the time of this recording in a few weeks, but by the time this airs, it will have already released and it's called Fear Gone Wild. Is this your first book? It is. Yeah. Okay. And I believe I was reading, I just got in the mail recently. I've started reading it. I haven't finished it all, but it is so good so far. But I don't remember where I read this, if it was in the book or not, but that you always felt like you wanted to write a book, but you never thought it would be about this. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Before, you know, before our story kind of unfolded and my husband passed away, I I had this morning routine where I would get up at 4.30 every morning and go sit at my kitchen counter and just spend some time in prayer and meditation. And, and then I'd work out and get ready for the day before my kids woke up. And it was during those wee hours of the morning uh, where I was by myself at the kitchen counter with God that I really felt this stirring in my heart to write. And I remember telling my husband, like, I think I 
Like, I think I want to write a book. And I know a lot of people say, like, I think I want to write a book. Like, one day, maybe I'll write a book. And it really was this, like, far-off God-sized dream that, like, one day that would be really cool. And my husband agreed. And he's like, yeah, one day, like, when life isn't as crazy and we're not running a church and raising three little boys and have a plate that's fuller than full, like, maybe one day that'll happen. And then... And then it happened. And it's not something I ever imagined God would ask me to write about. It's not something that I ever imagined would be my story, especially for my very first book ever. Yeah. I have to be honest that I did not know much about your story or about your husband's story until this book landed in my lap. And as soon as I saw it, I was, I for sure wanted to have you on the show because I, I personally have lost a a dear friend to suicide just within the last couple of years. And this is something that's near and dear to my heart. And so for people listening who might be like me, who did not know your story, can you give a brief, just, you know, condensed version of, of what this book is about and, and, you know, share a bit about, yeah, just your story here. Yeah. Yeah. So a few years ago, you know, I was living the life of my dreams. I had everything I could have ever ever wished for and more. I was married to my dream guy. We were living in our dream home. We were raising three beautiful boys and we were in full-time ministry. He was the lead pastor of our church and we were leading this large, thriving, growing church, great family, great circle of friends. I really, truly had everything I could have ever wanted. And then in the fall of 2017, my husband got sick and he started having panic attacks and those panic attacks eventually landed him in the hospital after a major panic attack. And so we decided to take him on a break of work and we put him on a sabbatical and we started trying to figure out what was going on inside of his body that was causing these panic attacks that were happening two to three times a week and very debilitating, very terrifying, would take over his whole body. And it was really scary. And so a few weeks after we put him on a sabbatical in April of 2018, he was diagnosed with depression. And I'll never forget sitting in the psychiatrist office with my husband and the psychiatrist looked at me eyeball to eyeball and said those words, your husband has depression. And I was so shocked and so stunned that I didn't say anything. We walked silently to the car. We slid into the car and I turned and looked at my husband and I said, how did we end up here? Like, how did this happen to you? My husband was was a driven guy, like so driven for excellence, could always do whatever he set his mind to, like always took care of everybody, was everything to everyone. Like I really, truly never saw this coming and neither did he. And so we started on this journey with depression and we were doing everything we knew to do to get him the help he needed. He was seeing a psychiatrist every other week. We were seeing a therapist together for two hours every week. He was taking medication. He had taken time off work. I had alleviated his responsibilities at home and really was giving him all the space he needed to rest and exercise and go on trips by himself and really just take the time to rest. And so by the end of July, the doctors actually thought that he was getting better. And so they thought the next step for healing would be to go back to work. Because he was so driven and and loved his job, they thought that would be the next right step. And so he returned the work August 1st, 2018, and really hit the ground running and gave two powerful messages on mental illness. He called the series Hot Mess, and he was using his own experience as the example. And he talked about depression, he talked about suicide, and he gave out 
statistics on mental health from the NAMI website. He gave out the suicide hotline number. Like he knew all the facts. He would have known where to go for help. And then headed into the third week, he had a really bad day at the office. And because his mind wasn't fully healed, when he returned to work, he kind of told our staff and he told our family he was at about 65%. So he wasn't at a full 100% of healing. He knew that he needed to ease back into his job. And so because his mind wasn't fully healed and he was still sick, he wasn't able to process what happened at work like he normally would. And so he had what I can only describe as like a mental breakdown. And so it was a big alarm going off for our family, you know, telling us that he's not okay, that he's not healthy, that maybe he wasn't ready to go back to work. And so While we were away from him just for a little bit, making arrangements for the next steps, thinking about taking him to an inpatient therapy, scheduling guest speakers for the weekend. While we were were away from him, he attempted suicide. And we were completely shocked, completely stunned, like really, truly never saw it coming. We really thought he was getting better and it was shocking for the doctors as well. And so he was rushed to the hospital and they did, they ran a bunch of tests and unfortunately there was nothing they could do. And so the next day on August 25th, 2018, he passed away and went to be with Jesus. And I was handed this brand new life that I did not want, that I never saw coming and that I had no choice but to live. Wow. I have chills over here. First of all, thank you for being so brave to share this. I I know if your husband was here today, he would be so proud of you. I'm proud of you for sharing. And I'm going to try to pull myself together here. And also just so, so sorry for your loss. I would love to know, you know, because I know one of your, and correct me if I'm wrong, one of your big hearts in sharing your story is to help other people who might be walking through something similar. Is that is that correct? Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, my my heart behind writing this book was to reach into the lives of other people um, that are walking alongside someone who's struggling with mental illness or someone that's facing a mental health diagnosis they never saw coming, or even for people that don't maybe don't understand mental illness or have never experienced it firsthand or have never walked alongside somebody. You know, my heart is to continue to help to break the stigma and help us to be people of greater empathy and love and understanding. Yeah. Yeah. So let's do that today. Let's break some down some walls of those stigma things. And I'm curious, before your husband started having those panic attacks, what was your own knowledge of mental illness? Yeah, you know, I have a background. I have a bachelor's degree in psychology. And so I have a basic understanding of, of mental health and the mind. But I would say that it looks so different in the textbooks than it does in real life. And so I I hardly knew what I was dealing with. I think there's a huge learning curve when it comes to mental health and mental illness, and it really takes time to learn what you're dealing with. You know, I I think it took us a while to decipher between healthy Andrew, my husband's name was Andrew, so healthy Andrew, and, and mental illness Andrew. And it was very, very difficult to live with somebody that was sick and to try to understand who I was speaking to and who I was dealing with each day. Yeah. So, you know, on that note, if someone's listening today who they are walking alongside somebody who is struggling with a mental illness, um, how did you partner together with Andrew to fight that darkness and, and treat his illness? 
you know, I was, I was doing everything I could to help him and walk alongside him, but I was also a mom full, you know, full-time mom. We had a very full house with three young boys. They were two. Well, actually they would have been, yeah, two, three and five at the time of his diagnosis. And my three-year-old turned four that summer. So they were two, four and five when he passed away. So they were very young and they're all boys. So very Mm. rambunctious, wild. They were all home for the summer. So I was really torn between being caretaker for my husband and then being mother for my kids. And I really wanted him to have space to seek health and rest. And so I was really full on mom mode. So it was really difficult. It was really difficult to be there for him in the way that he needed me and then to also be there for my kids. And I felt very, very torn every day, but I was trying my best. And so I I was going with him to every therapy appointment for two hours every week. I tried to make it to the psychiatrist appointments when I could. I tried to serve him and create space for him as best as I could. I tried to ask questions and and really I tried to get into that dark space with him and, and try to catch a glimpse of what life was like from his point of view. But it was really, really, really difficult. And in hindsight, you know, looking back on our journey, I think I could have done a better job of creating more space and asking for more help from friends and family to help with the kids that I could been so I could be there for him more. And I also think I could have asked for more help so that I could take more breaks for myself to fill myself back up so I could keep pouring out. Yeah. And you know, I I would imagine with you and I, I can also speak from personal experience that when somebody loses a loved one to suicide or is even walking along, you know, a loved one with mental illness, it is very easy to take on quite a bit of guilt over what we could have done better or should have done better. How have you navigated that for yourself as you reflect on things that maybe you could have done, you know, differently? Suicide is so brutal in that way. The months after his death, it was like this never ending movie reel playing in my mind of all the ways I could have saved him. And so it's torturous, you know, like here he is gone and there's literally nothing I can do to change it. But in my mind, I'm trying to save him every second of every day. My mind is coming up with scenarios of how I could have been there for him and why this shouldn't have happened and how I could have saved him. And so my saving grace in that and kind of releasing that and, and relieving my mind of just that cycle was to really decide that that the suicide was wasn't anybody's fault. It wasn't my fault, it wasn't Andrew's fault, it wasn't anybody else's fault, you know, it was a really truly a tragedy and no one is to blame. And so always bringing myself back to that when my mind wants to wander and when my mind wants to try to figure it out and when my mind wants to try to solve it, it's always returning back to that place of like this should not have happened. And it's a tragedy and no one is to blame. I love how you make that distinguishment because if you can think of it as a tragedy, then the tragedy is over here and, you you know, you're, you're separate from it. And so it's like it doesn't sit on top of you as a heavy weight, you know, which, of course, the enemy would love for that to be. I am curious how, you know, writing the book, but even talking to me today, there's a little piece of me that's curious is this therapeutic for you to retell the story or is it reliving, is it, you know, reliving that trauma for you? 
I would say it's all of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would say it was very, very therapeutic for me to write the book and for me to have these conversations that I've been really been having for the last two years. You know, they say when you write a book to be prepared to talk about it for two years, but I feel like for me, it's either going to be four years <laughs> or I already talked about it for two years and I, I don't know how it's going to look for me because I've already been doing this for two years. But it has been very, very therapeutic. Writing it was very cathartic. You know, I would sit at my computer and I would type and I would just cry. Mm. And so as therapeutic as it's been, it's also been extremely painful. And it is a reliving of the trauma. You know, when I retell the story, it isn't just this sad story that's that's separate from me. In my mind, the movie reel starts to play and I go back you know, to what, what life was like with Andrew, what life was like in our home that summer, what it felt like to be sitting in the psychiatrist's office with him and hearing that diagnosis. Like I can see Andrew's expressions and picture all of those things like so vividly in my mind, the colors, the smells, the sounds, what I was wearing, what he was wearing, his facial expressions, like it's all still so fresh and so real in my mind. And so it's all, it's all, it's all of it. It's a, it's a little bit of, of both retelling and reliving and therapeutic. Yeah. Well, even as you're speaking right now, I want to tell you today, I'm going to make it a, and not, actually I'm going to make this further. I'm going to take it on further. I'm going to make it a priority to pray over you, especially as you release this book. And to those of you who are lit on, um, obviously the the enemy is mad that you're talking about this and we're get debunking some of the stigma around mental health, but also just, you know, as a therapist in training, I can only imagine retelling this, you know, this traumatic story over and over. I want you to have a hedge of protection around you, you know, so I just want you to know I'm going to be covering you in prayer and I'm going to ask my listeners to be doing the same thing. I just feel the word grace over you that the Lord's just going to protect you and, and make it to where it is more of that therapeutic side as you share and you're so brave to touch on this. And so as we talk about this topic of st- uh, the stigma behind mental illness, it's really um, big, so big time in the church. So I would love to kind of dig into that side of things. As Andrew's battle began, you actually found some pretty disturbing stats about pastors and their mental health. What did you learn about that? Yeah, you know, there was a book that was my husband's favorite book, and it was called Leading on Empty by Wayne Cordero. And he probably read the book like four or five times. And I didn't pick it up until after he passed away. I just didn't have space to read when he was alive. And so I picked it up after he passed away. And it's such a beautiful gift to me. You know, there's underline and like, and he hand wrote in the margin and there's sticky notes all over it. Like he really, truly just soaked up this book. And so it was in that book that I read these statistics and the statistics are so it, cl- it includes some things like 50% of pastors feel unable to meet the needs of the job, 90% feel inadequately trained to deal with ministry demands, 70% of pastors feel like they don't have someone they consider a close friend, 45.5% of pastors say they have experienced depression or burnout to the extent that they needed to take a leave of absence for ministry. So I could say that my husband truly fell into those statistics. Like it is very, very, very difficult to be at the top of any organization. And I think especially at the church, when you are um, asked to be this 
are called to be this inspirational, motivational speaker. And also you're leading an organization. You know, our staff had about 35 people. And so this large, thriving organization, church of about 4,000 people. So this big machine that he was leading in. And through his time leading it, he also lost his father who had died from leukemia who was the lead pastor of the church and had handed the church off to him. And so there was grief and trauma mixed in there as well. But I saw how, you know, he really truly did burn out and started to isolate. And I think the depression probably hit him a lot sooner. And we were just playing catch up there towards the end. Yeah. And what was the name of that book? It's called Leading on Empty. Leading on Empty. Okay. Yep. It's a wonderful book. Really, really great book for people in ministry, especially. Okay. So what can we do to support the mental health of our pastors? You know what? I think if you're on a church staff, you can pray for your pastor. You can check in on your pastor. You can have empathy and grace for your pastor. You can make sure that you're continuing to help keep the unity of the church in those you know, backdoor conversations and conversations that happen in the office with other staff members, like always trying to bring it back to unity and always trying to dissolve uh, toxic conversations and always trying to have a high respect for the job that that person was called to. And that, and that we can always remember that any pastor of any any church is a human. You know, they're mm-hmm. not superhuman. They're human. And in their humanity, they're susceptible to the same stressors and illnesses and sickness and life circumstances and situations as the rest of us. Like they're not superhuman. They don't have superhuman strength. They're just the same as the rest of us and they're doing the best that they can. Yeah. I love how practical all these tips are on this topic. Another question I have for you is that that word suicide itself is actually just very taboo. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on how we remove the shame and and the fear surrounding that word? I think just being being comfortable saying the word out loud, being comfortable having conversations with people who are struggling with suicide. I think for some reason that word stirs up feelings of discomfort in us. I'll never forget the one time my husband mentioned suicide to me. Um, We were sitting at the kitchen counter after the kids had gone to bed. And I was overwhelmed. You know, I was just feeling completely overwhelmed with the season. And I was expressing to him how I was feeling overwhelmed. And in his response to me, he was telling me that he was up in the middle of the night the night before. And he had papers strewn all over the counter. And he was overwhelmed trying to organize the church staff and trying to work on some ministry stuff. And he thought about killing himself. And I'll never forget my reaction to his admission. And I said, Andrew, that's the most selfish thing you could ever do. Like, you would never do that to me and the boys. Like, do not talk about it. Do not say that word. Like, that is, that's not going to happen. And, and I was also like, did you Google it? You know, how would you do it? And so my response to him was a reaction. It wasn't a response. It was a reaction. And I was so overwhelmed. And the trigger was that word, that word suicide. And so I think that we can do a better job of, of responding instead of reacting when someone shares something like that with us, that instead of reacting like I did and and saying things like the word selfish, 
that we can respond and that we can lean in. Like when someone talks about suicide, it's time to close our mouths and open our ears and open our eyes and lean in. It's time to ask questions like, 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 do you have a suicide plan? What problem are you trying to solve through suicide? Do you know when or how you would do it? How often do you think about it? What can I do to help you? Like, where does it hurt? Tell me about your pain. How can I share in your pain? How can I serve you? I think when we lean in and we try to crawl into that space and sit right beside them and try to catch a glimpse of what life is like from their point of view, that's when we really, truly can save someone's life. And that's when they really, truly will feel like they are not alone and like they're understood. And I can say in my experience with my husband, I did not do a good job of that, of of, of responding that way. And because I reacted the way that I did, he never brought it up again. And I think he felt uncomfortable bringing it up again. And I think he was worried about my reaction if he did bring it up again. And, you know, I never brought it up again either because I truly believed it would never happen to him. I truly just pushed it off the table and thought that's that he was being dramatic, that he was overreacting, that it was in the heat of a conversation and it really, truly would never happen. But it did. Oh, Kayla, what you just shared is powerful. And I hope the listeners will rewind and listen to all of those things you just said, because essentially you just flipped the script and made it, you know, less about because you're exactly right. When we hear that word suicide, it elicits a fear. You know, it really I know very few people that it doesn't trigger unless you've trained yourself to not let it trigger you, you know, and I love that, you know, you're essentially saying we need to be a safe place because that probably is a big reason why more people don't confide in their loved ones is exactly what you just mentioned right there. They don't feel like we're a safe place for them. So thank you for sharing that. I know that's a super real and raw, but also extremely practical for all of us who are, you know, um, on the receiving end of listening to your story and what you're sharing. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, So now you are a single mom. And how do you stay present with your three boys as you continue to navigate this grieving process? Oh, I feel like COVID has like totally changed that for me. Prior to COVID, they were all in school full time, all three of them at this really safe uh, private school down the street. And so I really had space. You know, I had space during the day to write this book, to exercise, to like find my center and find my peace of mind and spend time with God and spend time in prayer and spend time with friends and go off to the beach and go paddle boarding or go surfing or just go sit on the sand. Like I had so much space before COVID hit and now post COVID, I mean, it looks so different and and it's, and it's hard, you know, it's hard to find that time and that space to fill back up and to fill my reservoir so I can keep pouring out for them every day. And so I would say right now in this season, it's very, very difficult as a single parent to feel like I, I have to carry the weight of it all, of not just being mom and dad, but also I'm teacher mm-hmm. and I'm chef and I'm provider and I'm, I'm the cleaner. You know, I have to clean the house too and take out the trash cans and do all the things. And so it's hard. 
it's really, really hard, but my boys are wonderful. I mean, they are really doing well. If you didn't know um, the trauma that they've lived through and what happened to their dad, like you really wouldn't know if you were around them. Like they're so resilient. They're so much fun. And they really, truly have been my motivation to get out of bed in the morning and to write this book. Um, This book is for them, you know, when they're older, and they have questions about their dad and they and they wonder what happened. I can just hand them this book or I can give them the audiobook and they can listen to me read it to them or I can read it with them and they can really get a glimpse of our not only our love story but also the events leading up to their dad's death and also what God did for our family after he passed away and how he took care of us and provided for us. I love that. So what would be some practical tips for people listening, that they could walk alongside you or someone that's grieving that is helpful to them? I mean, you just mentioned the different ways that God provided. Do you want to share some stories of what that looks like for your family? Yeah, you know, I think it can be simple, as simple as a question, how can I serve you? Like that simple question, someone had texted me that during our journey and it was someone that I honestly didn't know very well. I'd only spent time with her a couple of times and she sent me this text like thinking of you, like how can I serve your family? And I just thought that was such a beautiful question. So if you know someone that's a single parent during COVID or someone that's that's grieving right now, like sending a text, how can I serve you? Or if you think of a way that you can serve them, like just do it and don't even ask. Like if you think it would be really nice to like, drop them off some food, like just drop off the food or drop off the gift card or drop off the coffee. You know, if you think, if you think it would be really nice to watch the kids, like just show up at the door and say, Hey, I'm taking your kids for an hour. Like that. I would love that. If someone did that for me, I would absolutely be thrilled and I would love that. So yeah, just remember that question. How can I serve you? And it's a really powerful, powerful tool. All right. So the best question to ask is, how can I serve you? What's the worst thing to say to somebody who's grieving? Ooh, that's a good question. You just need to move on. Or I thought you would be over this by now. (laughs) (laughs) And I think the biggest thing I've learned in my grieving process is that you don't just move on from grief. You move forward with it. So the pain and the grief that I've experienced will always be with me for the rest of my life. I will carry the pain and the grief with me, but I can choose to build a beautiful life around it. And over time, you know, the hope is that that grief grows small and smaller and smaller, but truly that pain is unchanging. That pain is still just as confusing and just as mysterious and just as deep and just as sharp and just as gut-wrenching as it was that first day. And it'll be there forever. And so I think remembering that, that people that are grieving or people that have um, suffered extreme loss, deep loss, like that pain will always be there. And we, we don't move on. From from that, we move forward with it. I think you just set somebody free today who maybe was wrestling with guilt over still feeling that, that pain. I love that perspective. I've never heard anybody talk about it that way. That's really powerful. So as we wrap up our conversation, who would you say this book is for and what do you hope that they'll take away from it? 
Honestly, this book is for anyone. You know, if you are um, facing a mental health diagnosis you never saw coming, this book is for you. If you're like me and you're and you're and you're walking in the trenches of someone who's uh, facing a mental health diagnosis and you're the loved one caring for them, this book is for you. If you know nothing about mental illness in general, like this book is for you too. You know, my heart and hope is that it would help all of us view mental illness from a new lens of empathy and love. Yeah. What would you say to somebody listening who has been contemplating suicide, but maybe hasn't shared that with anybody? I would say, please tell somebody. And if you don't have that safe space, that safe person, if you feel like you don't have somebody you can tell, like pick up the phone and call the suicide hotline or text the crisis text line or go on psychology today and put in your zip code and your insurance information and find a therapist near you. Like there are people who want to love you. There are people who want to listen to you. There are people who want to share in your pain, but you have to tell somebody, you have to speak up for yourself. You have to advocate for yourself and don't brush it off. It can be so easy to, to, have a really bad day where you where you think about that and you have those thoughts of ending your life and it can be really easy to wake up the next day and those thoughts are gone and think oh i'm okay now like i'm not suffering from that anymore like that was just a, that was just a bad day but i would say it's really 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 important to still share those thoughts with somebody and it's really freeing to do that you know i've experienced suicidal thoughts since my husband passed away because of my deep overwhelming pain that some days feels unending like it's never going to go away i too have like wanted to leave that pain forever and sometimes death feels like the only way to leave that pain forever and what's been so helpful to me is to invite my friends into that space and to pick up the phone and as uncomfortable as it is because I don't want to make a big deal about it and I don't want to embarrass myself. It can feel embarrassing. It can feel shameful. And as uncomfortable as it is, picking up the phone and calling my friend and saying, hey, I'm having suicidal thoughts today. I feel like I should tell somebody. Like that is so freeing. The enemy, the enemy wants you to feel isolated. The enemy wants you to feel alone. And when you're alone, it is so dangerous. So invite other people into that space, even though it may feel uncomfortable. And even though you may feel like you're being dramatic or you don't want to make a big deal about it, like please tell somebody. You have to tell somebody. You have to let people into that space with you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that because I think that is so true. We almost feel like if we tell somebody, they're going to rush us off to a hospital or, you know, stick us into, you know, like all the things of, like you said, making a big deal of it kind of come to our mind. So thank you for just sharing that practical advice on that. And do you, yeah, I guess my, my final question to you would be then, what do you think about the church on this whole topic? Back to just we'll wrap it up with this on, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, if you, in your experience that sometimes Christians can have a little bit harder time admitting the suicidal thoughts. Do you see that or no? I think that sometimes mental illness can be made a spiritual issue. It can be, it can be over-spiritualized where Or people go to a church and they go sit with a pastor and they say, hey, I think I'm struggling with depression or, hey, I have thoughts of killing myself or I'm struggling with suicidal thoughts. And and sometimes, oftentimes, probably the response from that person in the church is like, oh, you just need to pray more or, oh, here's this verse or, oh, you just need to have more faith or, oh, you need to spend more time with God. 
And that can be so painful and so shameful and it's, and it's wrong. You know, it it isn't, it isn't a sin issue. It isn't from lack of prayer, lack of faith, like mental illness is a real physical illness. And so if if you've gone to a church and you've had that experience, I just want to say, I am so, so, so sorry that that's happened to you and that it isn't a faith issue and it isn't a sin issue. It's a life issue. We're all going to face pain in life. We're all going to have hard things that we go through in life. And that doesn't separate you from God. And it doesn't mean you don't have enough faith. And it doesn't mean that you're not trying hard enough. Like God loves you just the way you are. Like whether you're struggling with depression, struggling with suicidal thoughts, like walking through a season of anxiety, like that does not mean that you do not have enough faith or you are not close enough to God. Like nothing can separate you from the love of God. I love ending on that. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And because of that truth, then that means God is a safe place that we can go to and say, hey, God, I'm struggling with this, you know, because if we believe it's a faith issue, then we won't go to God, right? In Mm -hmm. that struggle. (laughs) That's so good. Well, Kayla, thank you again for taking the time to come on the show to, you know, share your story through this book. Where can people connect with you? Obviously get a copy of your book, but also connect with you online. Yeah, the best place to find me is on Instagram. My Instagram handle is Kayla Steck, and the book will be available wherever books are sold, Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble, wherever you want to pick up a book, it'll be there. Perfect. And those links will also be in today's show notes. So thank you again, Kayla, and I'm excited to release this episode to the listeners. Thank you so much for having me. Well, first of all, I want to publicly thank Kayla again for being brave and sharing her story. She really is a voice of truth and hope for so many hurting people. And please pray for her as you feel led. She definitely needs to be surrounded by those prayers. And I told her we would be doing that. So let's do it for her. And if you're listening today and you're having suicidal thoughts or you know a loved one who is, please, please, please seek professional help. Also, I just want you to know I'm praying over you. And I'm praying that that spirit of suicide is just gone in the name of Jesus. All right, friends, that's all that we have for today. I pray this episode brought you one step closer to getting real, living free, and pursuing your God-given dreams. I'll see you back here next time on Real Talk with Rachel.